0: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And
1: I'm Caroline.
0: And this episode kicks off a two-part series that we are going to do looking at rape and sexual assault focused in the United States. And so, first of all, We just want to offer a trigger warning that, yes, we will be talking about these issues. Uh, We're not going to go into graphic detail at any point, but for people who would be sensitive to those topics, we just want to let you know that that's where we're going to be going in this conversation. And this is something that we've gotten a number of requests from listeners for years now. Every now and then we hear uh, people asking us to talk about rape, to talk about sexual assault, to talk about uh, these horrible things that are happening in places like Steubenville, Ohio, or more recently with the scandal of the quote-unquote roast busters in New Zealand of, of teen boys who... We're making a sport out of sexually assaulting young women. And what we want to do with these two episodes is not so much talk about the horrifying details of what happened in places like Steubenville, Ohio, Maryville, Missouri, Athens, Ohio, but rather take a step back, as we're going to do in this particular episode, and look more at the history of rape and sexual assault and how... It, it evolved legally and also how it evolved in terms of women's rights and also
1: civil rights for women of color as well. That's right. As Kristen and I were talking about before um, this podcast, you know, rape culture is discussed as a modern invention, something that we are just now turning our attention to and fighting back against. But the truth is, when you dig into the history of First, legislation and actual laws against sexual assault and rape. And then going back into why those laws were passed, you realize that there is quite a deep, intricate history of rape and sexual assault kind of ingrained in our culture. And I don't even mean that in in terms of American culture or modern culture. I mean that when you go back and look at the origins of rape law, it almost makes it more clear what we're up against today. Exactly. Uh, because so often when
0: things like the sexual assault, the gang rape that happened in Steubenville, Ohio, when those issues take place, a lot of times the conversation that immediately comes up around it involve three things which are social media the hookup culture and alcohol use and we're not going to talk about that today because like you said Caroline this isn't an issue of 21st century factors what's going on today is a manifestation of centuries millennia worth of Of history, starting all the way back in 1780 BC, if you look at Hammurabi's Code in Babylonia, if a betrothed virgin was raped, she was considered blameless, and her attacker was slain. But if a married woman was raped... Both she and her attacker were thrown in the river to drown. And why is that? Why do we have this distinction between a betrothed virgin who might be seen as more honorable and a married woman? Well, this goes back to this fundamental issue of women being perceived as property relative to men. And a betrothed virgin has of high value to her father. And so if a guy comes along and assaults her, then that is a crime upon more upon her father, in a way, than upon the girl. Whereas if a woman has had sex before, she is married, then her value is probably lower. And it was just assumed that she would have been crying wolf and she was probably just having an affair or something with this guy.
1: Right. And another issue um, that people talk about today in rape cases is the issue of... Basically, consent, protesting, you know, did the woman, is she making it up? Mm -hmm. So looking back at the Mosaic Law of Israel, unmarried women who were raped within the city walls would end up being stoned to death because if she hadn't consented, then surely people around her would have heard her screaming.
0: Yeah, whereas if she were raped outside of city walls. So even if in this case she had been protesting, people wouldn't have been able to hear her. But still, the rapist under this law would simply have to pay the father a bride price, and then he had to marry her. Because again, women as property, marriage is an economic tool at this point.
1: Right, absolutely. And so again, we have basically the burden of proof from, a, from the get-go being on the victim of rape. And looking back at Assyria, they had a statute that allowed fathers of rape victims to rape the wife of the rapist. It's like a tit for a tat, an eye for an eye. Exactly. And those are are just
0: a few of the horrifying rape laws that we have as our sort of historical foundations for this issue. And we're going to move forward. And and also, uh, for listeners, we're obviously not going to be able to give a comprehensive, granular, step-by-step look at all of the different rape and sexual assault laws. Um, but but we want to offer as much of uh, a relevant snapshot as we can. So now we're going to focus more just on the West. And first we're going to look at England because I went through an evolution in its rape law wherein prior to 1066, it was a
1: crime punishable by dismemberment. Right. Basically, you would get drawn and quartered. Um, in the 12th century, under Henry II, you do eventually get a trial by jury, and you need corroboration. Um, and, and what that means in that old law is that the woman should have made a hue and cry after the incident. She needed to have run through the streets screaming and, tr- and crying, basically, showing that she was injured, showing that her clothes were torn to offer proof. And that's, that just echoes that Mosaic Law of Israel.
0: Mm -hmm. And then in the 13th century, under King Edward II, we see some important advances, both positive and negative for victims. Um, first of all, we have the Crown being involved in all rape cases, not just in instances with virgins. And that whole issue of the virginity construct, whether or not a woman is believed to have had vaginal intercourse before, that so often and still today often is the line between how much we are going to believe her if she says that she has in fact been assaulted. Um, but still, If you look at uh, British law text FLATA from 1290, it maintains that women simply cannot get pregnant
1: via rape. Just FYI. And doesn't that sound familiar, Caroline? That does, because it was uh, Representative Todd Akin, who was a nominee for U.S. Senate in Missouri. He claimed that abortion in cases of rape was unnecessary because, quote, if it's a legitimate rape, the female body has ways to shut that whole thing down.
0: And that's actually not true, because uh, if Senator Aiken knew his science at all or knew his statistics at all, about 5% of sexual assaults actually result in pregnancy. So guess what? We don't have some kind of magical shutdown system in our body. But what is more mind-boggling than that is that that same old unscientific anti-rape doctrine is still being recycled in our nightly news
1: headlines. And it's around this time also that statutory rape is recognized by law for the first time. And the rule basically stated that the king prohibits that none do ravish any maiden within age. And two positives that emerged during this time were um, the fact that statutory rape was recognized by law. So girls of a certain age were protected and it, the distinction in punishments for rape of virgins and non-virgins was also eliminated. But there was
0: also the statute of limitations that was established, which uh, maintained that if a woman failed to institute a private suit within 40 days, then the right to prosecute automatically passed to the Crown, which meant that rape was no longer a family misfortune, but an issue of public safety and state concern. However, almost every time we see laws enacted like this that actually support victims' rights, there's a little bit of uh, punishment that gets chipped away at. For instance, simultaneously, the penalty for rape was reduced to two years' imprisonment.
1: So if we move to the U.S. and talk about our specific legal history it is very very tied up with issue issues of race and class in addition to as we'll get into women's rights and one of our main sources looking at this was Estelle Freeman's Redefining Rape Sexual Violence in the Era of Suffrage and Segregation she talks about how until the late 19th century white tramps and strangers dominated much of the discourse on sexual assault and if we look back at the 18th century, there was this idea of the libertine or the rake, who was this elite white man, basically, who presumed sexual privilege, but wasn't considered a criminal. And I think, I mean, that sounds pretty familiar. Also, we, in fact, did a video talking about what constitutes something that's creepy, right?
0: Yeah, creepy versus uh flattering and right there you have this issue of class. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you have someone like for instance today, we there was a lot of controversy over Robin Thicke's Summer Hit blurred lines because mm-hmm. he's talking about these these so-called blurred lines between consent and not where we're actually guess what Robin Thicke the, the lines are not blurred at all. Uh consent is very black and white, but he is a handsome wealthy white guy who would be considered in those 18th century terms, perhaps more of a libertine or a rake who, you know, because he's he's charming. And so he's given these kinds of privileges over women's bodies. Whereas by, you know, on the flip side of that, if you happen to be a man of lesser means and still at this time, a white man of lesser means, then you are a threat. And also that ties into how, Rape at this time was seen very much as a crime of dishonor because rape at the time, too, was something that really happened specifically in society's eyes to white women of means.
1: Because that idea of female chastity was so much more important than any type of female actual having sovereignty over her own body or her own self. Yeah cuz you see that there's this long-held
0: construct of rape as more of a crime of dishonor you're dishonoring yes a woman's uh, perhaps virginity and i say that in quotes we've talked about the uh the trouble with the the word virginity because it's very specific in terms of just Vaginal penetration, um, but and also it's more extensive to uh, dishonor of an entire family at the time rather than being seen as a physical assault, which is what it is. And Freeman writes that quote, an ideal of female chastity that was more significant as a measure of family or national honor than as a form of female sexual sovereignty, was really how rape was perceived at that time.
1: Right. But it was in the 19th century in the U.S. that we have these suffragists and other reformers pushing for major changes because during this time, we're living in an environment where the prosecution of rape was nearly impossible unless the woman was white, virginal, unmarried to the rapist. And middle class. If you were of a lower class, of a lower social standing, you just were not going to have the same rights afforded to you. Right. And so what some of these 19th century reformers were lobbying for
0: were things like raising the age of consent above the common law statute, which was carried over from England, of 10 years old. So 10, in other words, used to be the
1: age of consent in the United States. Right. And this was occurring in the context of the new meaning of childhood in industrial America um, and the rise in women's politicization. So you have these suffragists who are pushing for more women's rights. They are also, in addition to many other things on their list, pushing for this rise in the age of consent. They wanted to protect children, but it was more than just protecting children's innocence and kind of insulating their actual childhood. Um they were also worried about venereal diseases. Raising the age of consent would make it possible to, as Freeman writes, to not only prosecute the men who recruited young girls, you know, like there are, there's all these stories about young girls coming to the big cities like Chicago and being recruited into basically uh, sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. So not only would it, you know, enable the prosecution of those men, but it would protect young girls from sexual ruin, quote unquote. And deter the spread of disease. And so it was around this time that the legal age for marriage, we're not talking about consent, but for marriage, moved from 12 for girls and 14 for boys to 16 and 18, respectively. So there was that protected period that starts coming about during this time.
0: Well, and speaking of marriage, one way that that men would often pressure younger women into having sex with them was by promising that they would get married, because if you got married, then it'd be fine. So if you're already engaged, then yeah, you can go ahead and do something. And so these reformers also sought criminal penalties to discourage what they called the quote-unquote licentious man who would coerce, persuade, pressure a young woman to have sex under the false pretenses of Marriage, But at the same time, while all this is going on, yet again, as we see centuries before in England, whenever you have movements on behalf of victims' rights for protecting women, for actually giving women more agency and more sovereignty over their bodies, you usually see the flip side of that, of some chipping away of uh, women's credibility. So this is also... When the concept of sexual delinquency, particularly targeted towards girls, was established, or as I like to call it, Yield slut shaming, uh, because this was really the the idea that there were bad girls. They were, you know, if a girl expressed any kind of sexual interest, then she was most certainly a delinquent. And so you had moral reformers who would create homes for delinquent and wayward girls. We hear about homes for wayward girls mm-hmm. a lot of times, and this is what they're talking
1: about. Right. And in 1900, so right there at the turn of the 20th century, the L.A. Times reported on charges brought against a 20-year-old man by a 14-year-old victim. But, and how familiar does this sound to modern-day media, they said that this this girl was the victim of sexual assault by this 20-year-old man. But they made sure to report that the victim ran with a fast crowd who brought her to saloons and, and all of this rigmarole. So they made sure to insert that like, well, she might have been assaulted, but was she asking for it? Yeah. Are we
0: really going to trust her? And that's the same kind of narrative. I believe that was in the New York Times when the, uh, the Steubenville case came back up again, because at first it was brushed under the rug. And then the New York Times wrote this piece about this bizarre case, but it describes the victim in terms of what she tended to wear yeah. and what she tended to do on the weekends. And people were thankfully and rightfully outraged at that kind of posturing Um but Caroline, back to that case that was reported on in the L.A. Times between that 14-year-old girl and the 20-year-old man. Uh, she was sent to one of those homes for wayward girls. And ostensibly the point is to protect them from any kind of sexual predation. But really, the, the, the bent of these kinds of homes was to change the behavior of of the girls who ended up in them to make them virtuous, pure, respectable women. What you know? What kind of reform school the guy had to go to? Probably none, because that again is something that we still see today. Where the question often circles back to not how can we change our thinking societally, not how can we uh, raise up boys and men to consider women differently, uh, but. What can we do to change women in such a way so that they won't attract it?
1: Right, exactly. I mean, Estelle Freeman writes that often, you know, the rapist would get maybe, maybe two years in prison. But the victim who was sent to these homes, you know, if she might be 14, like this one girl we talked about. And if she had to spend the rest of her childhood before she was an adult, a legal adult in these homes, I mean, she could spend seven years in this home. So she's incarcerated technically for longer than the rapist is. Well, and imagine, too, she comes back
0: to her hometown after leaving one of those homes for wayward girls. And she's probably marked for Mm -hmm. the rest of her life, in a way, as being one of those girls, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, But we're talking at that point about mostly about white girls. The situation for African-American women was much worse. And it's still worse, uh, statistically today. Um, but if we look in the 19th century, there were African American activists who were doing a lot of work simply to change the, the legal standing to accept the fact that black women could be victims of rape. That wasn't even a concept at the time.
1: Right. And this goes all the way back to slavery when oftentimes African American women were purchased for the sole purpose of being basically sex slaves for white men, and so it was very common at the time to perceive both black women and men as being hyper sexual. So just like you said, I mean, like, well, how can you be raped if I mean that's just what you want? Exactly.
0: Yeah, and and, and that's for for black women the racist assumption is that they are always ready and willing. And for black men, the racist assumption was that they would always be sexual predators, specifically toward white women. I mean, mm. and if you look, for instance, just at the South in the United States during post-Civil War, Dr- Jim Crow era, and like up and through the civil rights movement in the 1960s, And we should probably devote an entire podcast to her, but this is where the work of journalist Ida B. Wells is so important because she was one of the most influential crusaders on behalf of those rights for black women and changing that conversation, not necessarily among white society at the time, but first starting and sparking that conversation among black communities as well.
1: Right. Inspired by Wells' writing, members of the Northern Black Women's Clubs insisted that, quote, virtue knows no color line and implored white men to treat them respectfully because there's there's that whole issue of virtue. And and they were saying, well, if women are so precious, why are black women any less precious? Why are you treating us as subhuman? And so taking on that mantle, the African-American press itself publicized white men's sexual impunity.
0: Yeah, so you have papers like the Chicago Defender in 1911 headlining an article white gentleman commits rape, which would have been revolutionary at the time because not only do you have you know the, the very fact of a, a, a black victim being given credibility, but you also have a white perpetrator.
1: Right, exactly. And the subhead to that article was, that's all right. It was on a colored girl permitted by the United States government and the Confederacy. So this was definitely activist press trying its hardest to just bring attention to the fact that African-American women should not. There is no reason that they should have to suffer when middle class white women can take their Perpetrators to court. And so when we
0: move then into the 1920s, there's this attitude. Shift from the more patronizing and paternalistic, wanting to, you know, send women away to these wayward homes and, you know, protect, protect them under lock and key from these licentious men to shifting though to blame and culpability of the victims. Because yet again, we see this cycle where the, (laughs) whenever there's the tidal wave of women's rights that swells, you always have the reverse happening of people wanting to undercut that progress.
1: Right. And so the American Journal of Urology and Sexology in 1918 and 1919 ran articles, plural, warning lawyers to the great danger that men are often in from false accusations by female children and women.
0: So watch out, guys. This is, and also this is, This is in 1918. I mean, going going back to what we were saying at the top of the podcast in terms of hearing about rape culture today as though it is some sort of new thing, and people react very strongly to hearing that, but... No, no, this is going on. This is the same kind of stuff that we're hearing today that was published in 1918, 1919. But in 1929, we do have more of a formalizing of the definition of rape by the FBI's Uniform Crime Reporting Program to include, quote, the carnal knowledge of a female forcibly and against her will. But note, though, that that old definition only speaks to a female victim. Right. And that's going to remain in place until 2012. But we will circle back to that later.
1: Well, we mentioned earlier that, you know, sexual assault and rape was, you know, specifically seen as being perpetrated by strangers, by tramps, transient white trash tramps who are coming through town and attacking people. But... As we move forward into the 1970s and 80s and the rise of second wave feminism, we have the term date rape coin to describe unwanted sex with an acquaintance. And it was around this time, too, that uh, sexual abuse within the family was targeted. These These things that had been basically hidden away behind closed doors for so many years were finally being brought out into the light.
0: Yeah, and because of these efforts in the 1980s, in the 1980s, just remember that, states began to outlaw marital rape. Actually, in 1976, we should say, Nebraska became the first state to abolish the marital rape exception because, that's right, there was an exception to these rape laws saying, oh, actually, if you are married to somebody, he can pretty much do what he wants with you whenever. And he, it might not be with impunity, but it would be categorized as something entirely different and not it wouldn't carry as strict of punishments uh if you were somebody's husband as opposed to someone unrelated. And Caroline, I remember watching a documentary from PBS's maker series about second wave feminism and they talked about how uh Ms Magazine did a huge spread on Marital rape and talk to women who had eventually like ended up leaving their husbands because of these kinds of issues of sexual abuse within the home and how revolutionary it was because not so long ago, that idea that that could even happen Was so new Mm -hmm. and it was so empowering for women to talk to other women and say, oh, my God, this is happening to me, too. This is happening to you. This isn't right. And I'm not saying that it was happening in, in every home in America, but it was still happening enough that it was galvanizing for a lot of women.
1: And it's really not until around this time also that states start to revisit the whole idea of corroboration and the use of utmost force to prove resistance. Basically, states finally lift these requirements that um you have to prove somehow that you were incredibly injured during the assault.
0: And we also need to mention that in 1975... Susan Brown Miller published Against Our Will, which was this groundbreaking book about rape. And, and really, it was hailed as one of, if not the first book in the 20th century to really talk about these kinds of issues. And it ended up becoming uh, a bestseller and has become kind of a, a seminal feminist text because it helped to fuel these kinds of reforms that were happening. Although, I mean, we, we have to say, though, that those 19th century reforms that we were talking about or turn-of-the-century reforms that we mentioned, too, in terms of um, changing laws to acknowledge that black women can also be victims of rape. At that time too, during civil rights, they were still fighting for that. Mm-hmm. They weren't there, you know, there's still so, so much progress that needs to be made. It's like white feminists were finally getting around to the issue of marital rape and finally with civil rights, black women were finally getting more recognition mm-hmm. of them actually being able to, you know, be recognized as,
1: as victims in these situations. Right. Well, but you also have that entire, I mean, uh, talk about things that we could dedicate an entire podcast to. I mean, You also have that cultural divide in terms of African American, the African American community and rape Mm -hmm. and the whole issue of not wanting to report a black woman, not wanting to report being raped by a black man because of the white man, the system being run by the white man and wanting to protect your own. Well, protect your own and also to finally move away from that
0: racist idea of the black man as being the sexual predator out to get white women specifically. So some scholars have talked about how that created a bit of a catch 22 where yes, they, you know, within these African American communities, they wanted to push for more progress in terms of awareness of rape and sexual assault and being able to talk about it, but not wanting to undercut any Progress that had been made moving forward away from, uh, that idea of, of the demonized hypersexual black man, too. Right. Um, but as part of the consciousness raising that was a hallmark of second wave feminism during the 1970s and 80s, we have the rape crisis centers that we see so often today that are a direct outgrowth of this women's movement because you know, feminists essentially got together and said, hey, we need to help each other. We need to set up some kind of, uh, resource center where people can go.
1: Yeah. And courts declared during this time that a woman's sexual history was irrelevant in a rape trial. But I mean, I'm, I'm shaking my head because in the court of public opinion, That is obviously still a huge problem. Absolutely.
0: Um, and then in the 1990s, there is increasing awareness going on of the problem of date rape and marital rape by the 1990s became a crime in all 50 states. And again, I realize with this episode, we're just leapfrogging through time, but even just in the snippets that we're offering, there isn't, there, there hasn't been a radical change in terms of how we think about women's bodies all that much yes we have more agency yes there is more organizing that was happening you know among women to help other women and yes laws were slowly catching up to it but we're talking about
1: the 90s caroline yeah and i mean if you think about how much time that is one would think that the changes in culture in attitude in law would be much more radical for 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 how many years? 800, 900, 1000 years to, to not have more significant changes in the way that women are viewed from, from being, okay, so, you know, from being mad that a woman is raped because she's your property mm-hmm. to being mad that a woman is raped because she's a young girl and now she's defiled and it's her fault. So we need to go pack her off to a home for wayward girls. And she's dishonored your family. Right. And so, We really, in terms of the ingrained ideas about women and about their bodies and their sexuality, we really have not come very far.
0: And even still,
1: rape is seen
0: as having so many gray areas, which is patently false because rape is rape. And yet that is a surprisingly new concept to us because the legal definition has been in flux for so long. And so I mentioned that FBI uniform crime reporting change in the definition of rape in 1929. And so only in 2012 did the FBI change its definition to include a form of forced sexual penetration of men, women, children, and I believe also trans people, as well as, and this is very important, non-forcible rape.
1: And so all this entire discussion has been leading us up to talking about the modern term of rape culture. What is it? How did it get here all of a sudden? You know, and the fact is, like I said at the top of the podcast, this is something that has existed and, and you could question a lot of people say we don't, we don't live in a rape culture any more than we live in a murder culture. But to those people, I say that it is so ingrained and insidious that Maybe, yeah, maybe some people don't even realize it. Well, and that's, that's the part of the very definition
0: of rape culture, where it is perpetuated through the use of misogynistic language, the objectification of women's bodies, the glamorization of sexual violence that creates a society that disregards women's rights and safety, where it is an assumption that at some point, if you are a woman, You are going to probably face sexual assault. If you, you know, if you're not watching what you're wearing, if you're not watching where you're going, if you're not watching who you're hanging around with, that it will constantly be a threat in your life. And it's so commonplace that it's cool to make jokes about it. That Mm -hmm. the rape jokes can be hilarious and funny and, and, and not at all you know, incredibly insensitive and and wrong towards the people, the many people that it happens to, because that's the thing we've been focusing all this conversation on females as victims, but it's not just women that this happens to either. And just to tee up for our next conversation, where we're going to look at where we are today in terms of, uh, rape statistics and perpetrators and victims and at risk populations. Um, A lot of times the conversations that we have around rape today focus on hookup culture, alcohol, and social media, and looking at those three things as the variables that we need to change. People need to stop hooking up. Kids need to drink less. Girls specifically should drink less. And we need to get rid of smartphones for kids. But eliminating all of that, you take away all three of those factors in your perfect utopia. And guess what? You still have this legacy. You still have this history. You still have these
1: societal foundations. Yeah. Teaching women, basically, that it is our job day in and day out to avoid being raped. Mm -hmm. It is on us. It's The onus is on us to not be raped. And we end up limiting our behavior because of that. And that is rape culture. Yeah. Limiting our behavior because of this idea that we live with every day that we are afraid of getting raped. It's not something that most men have to live with. And speaking of men, I, I I
0: want to underscore that we are not trying to portray men as rapists. We don't feel like men... We're, we're not trying to preach that men are, are inherently terrible and and it's all bad. It's, it's a product, though. We have to pay attention to the product of this history and of this almost self-perpetuating cycle of sexism and racism and classism and all of those things that get tied up with it. But before we soapbox... Anymore, uh, it's time now to wrap up part one of this two part series that we are doing on rape and sexual assault and, uh, we would love to hear from you. Uh, we want to know how this issue resonates with you. So let's start a discussion. You can email us, discovery.com. You can tweet us at MomStuffPodcast, and you can find us on Facebook as well because this is an important topic. It's not easy to talk about. It's probably not easy to listen to, but it is crucial for us and for the generations of people who will come after us for us to talk about this and not just women guys we want to hear from you too trans people we want to hear from you three we want to hear from everybody so let us know your thoughts and we will share a couple of letters with you when we come right back from a quick break and now back to our letters (laughs) So we've got a couple of letters to share in regard to our Women in STEM series, because Caroline, I don't know about you, but I never tire of hearing about women in science. Uh, So Stephen actually wanted to write in about our engineering episode in which we talked about how industrial engineering, which has the greatest proportion of women among all the engineering fields. I wanted to talk about why engineering sometimes gets made fun of in engineering school. He writes, While it is very true that industrial engineering gets called imaginary engineering, I don't think this is because of how many women are or are not in the field. In school, the majors we made fun of were always the IEs and the civil engineers. This is because of the lower amount of math and hard science required compared to other engineering disciplines. Mechanical engineers take thermodynamics, electrical engineers take semiconductor physics, aeronautical engineers take fluid dynamics, and computer engineers take processor design. Meanwhile, industrial engineers are laying out factory workflows, and civil engineers are deciding how much to bank the highway on-ramp. If these stereotypes were related to the genders of the disciplines, I doubt they would center on the most and least female-populated fields. Now being out of college, I realize that the most important engineering skill is a methodical and scientific approach to solving real-world problems. And that is something all engineers have in common, even if they didn't all have to take calculus for. So thanks, Stephen, for that engineering insight.
1: I have a letter here from Katie. She says, as a female nuclear engineer, having just graduated from college in May, I've been working at a nuclear power plant for about six months. I haven't encountered any negative attitudes towards the very few women engineers who work there. No one doubts the intelligence and capability of women to perform just as well as men, but the working environment is not women-friendly. Some of it is just practical issues. Having been a male-dominated field, it's sometimes difficult to get your hands on things like protective clothing that's the right size for a woman. But other things are more subtle. An entry-level engineer can expect to work 60-plus hours a week and be on call 24-7-365, and at certain times of the year be required to work shift work. As you move up in the ranks, the time demand becomes greater and greater for supervisors and managers. Right now, as a single young woman, I can do it, although, to be honest, the lack of a work-life balance even now is an issue. But I'm not sure I'll be able to if, when, I get a family. While in college studying nuclear engineering, I was passionate about getting more women interested in math and science and engineering. Now that I'm actually out in the workplace, I'm not sure I'd be able to recommend it. It's a very difficult, demanding field, and it doesn't lend itself to a good work-life balance. A final point. I got into engineering because I loved math and science, problem solving, and the theory behind it all. Engineering, at least where I work, is a very hands-on type of field that I wasn't expecting. You actually go out into the field and get your hands dirty dealing with massive mechanical equipment. It's a shock to go from the classroom theory into the field in the workplace. So thank you for sharing your story, Katie. And thanks to everybody who's written to us, momst at discovery.com is where you can
0: send us your letters. You can also follow us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. Find us on Facebook and like us while you're at it. We're also on Instagram if you want to see photos of us. We are at Stuff Mom Never Told You. And we're on Tumblr as well at stuff told And as always, we are also on YouTube, so you should head over and check out the many, many videos that we have to offer there. It's YouTube.com slash Stuff Mom Never Told You. And don't forget to subscribe. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. If you're a guy in need of some new clothes, you should head over to jackthreads.com, which has quickly become the online shopping destination for dudes. And you want to know why? Everything on the site is up to 80% off, including apparel from cool brands like Converse, Penguin, and Busted Tees.
1: And right now, for Stuff Mom Never Told You listeners, you can skip the membership waitlist if you go to signup.jackthreads.com slash mom Today. So don't forget, go to signup.jackthreads.com and skip that wait list.